So today we're going to be talking about Alcibiades, which is a platonic dialogue between Socrates and the Athenian demagogue Alcibiades, who we mentioned on the last episode with Brian Kaplan, and in the Thucydides episode, where he was the guy who sold out the Athenians, defected to the Spartans, wasted men and material, basically killed the Athenian cause in that war. Yeah. Very interesting dialogue for sure. I think it's worth noting that there is some discussion around the authenticity of this piece. There's some debate in academic circles about whether it really was written by Plato himself. It doesn't really matter for the purposes of our discussion, but just wanted to, you know, call that out as well. Yeah. And then in terms of time frames, so that's one thing that I was thinking about. I feel like this is before a lot of the things that we talked about oh, yeah. in Thucydides. Yeah. Um, when Alcibiades is pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe he said he's around, Socrates says he's about 20 during this dialogue, um, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, it's almost like this cautionary tale where Socrates is like, hey, here are all these things you need to do in order to be an effective leader. And then Alcibiades goes on to do almost none of them. Yeah. And and Socrates like says that at the end of the dialogue where he's like, you know, I fear this this dialogue may not be enough that like the power of the city is still going to corrupt you. Yeah. Yeah. Though I think Socrates gives a little too much credit to like the city because obviously there are people who weren't corrupted by it. Pericles, for example. Yeah. Um, and Alcibiades is a particularly like perfidious and like, you know, wicked person so yeah yeah but it was an interesting interesting dialogue like he starts off kind of describing the ambition of alcibiades so he asks alcibiades would you rather live with what you have now or would you rather die on the spot if you weren't permitted to acquire anything greater i think you'd choose to die and then he says the same thing about like if you become the greatest man in greece but you're told that you can't go beyond greece you know, would that be enough? And he, Socrates believes it wouldn't be enough for Alcibiades. And then Alcibiades is like, yeah, for argument's sake, let's say that I, I do feel that way. That I would rather die than be content with my lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that was that was actually one that I highlighted as well, interestingly enough. You know, I thought what was interesting about it is like thinking about what I would actually answer in that situation. You know, I think... To me, it feels like, you know, obviously the correct answer is to be, you know, or I don't know if it's the correct answer, but it seems like the answer I should have is like, yeah, I should just be content with my lot. But I think there's a pretty strong chance that I would be like, yeah, just kill me now. It's just going to be the same forever. Not because what I have now is bad. I mean, my life is great in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but just because like, you know, what am I doing if it's not trying to better myself and, and my life? Yeah. Like, what is there to do? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. I mean, I think, uh, I guess it's one of those things where if you think about desireless people or the people who are closest to desireless, it's like, you know, Buddhist monks. And there are Buddhist monks who, you know, work on calligraphy or, like, you know, the martial arts or, like, you know, do gardening or stuff like that or do a lot of writing. Um, so so, so I, I think it's possible to not have that feeling of, like, discontent but still work. Um, but I don't think you're going to work the same way. 
Um, I just think there, there's there's multiple like multiple possible reasons for like pushing yourself. You know? Yeah. 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 Definitely. I guess the other question too is like if you look at a Buddhist monk who you know gives up all earthly possession possessions mm-hmm. and meditates for twenty years, have they made any further acquisition in that twenty years? I think unequivocally yes they've acquired you know great depth of knowledge and understanding of the world through 20 years of meditation yeah so i guess it's it kind of comes down to semantics and like where do you draw the line of of like what is a further acquisition yeah yeah that's true that's true yeah yeah i guess like the the thing i find interesting about this is like it's this like bottomless desire to like be recognized for alcibiades you know yeah yeah yeah, and for Alcibiades, it does seem, like, very much tied to, like, specific, like, earthly possession or increased power. Um, and not just, like, you know, I, like, in the context of Plato or Plato's writing and Socrates' is speaking, it's definitely not, they're not talking about, like, meditating for 20 years being, you know, making greater acquisition. Yeah, or, or, or like, you know, um, mastering your craft or, like, you know, building a building a business like Alcibiades wants to be like Xerxes or like Alexander the Great you know yeah, yeah. he's he's definitely like power hungry I mean going back to the capital power episode, hungry, yeah I think he's very much like a, a prototypical in the public choice framing of politics he's, he's a prototypical you know politician so to speak yeah, I had a great passage here somewhere that I highlighted to talk about power hunger but I can't find it. <laughs> oh, wait, here we go, here we go. Um, and it's the passage we already talked about. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? The... the one about, like, would you rather die on the spot if you, you know, were unable to uh, acquire anything greater? And then if he's, like, you know, if you were the most influential man in the city, um, would that be enough, or would you want to be influential in the continent and then in the world if you had absolute power in europe but you weren't permitted to cross over into asia would you be able to live with that you know yeah 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 so so that's kind of the starting point of this dialogue like here's a young you know hyper ambitious person who like literally wants to take over the world not like oh i want to build things and you know um have independence over my own life and and acquire resources for that but i want i want to control your life I know what's best for you. Um, so that's kind of the starting point. And then Socrates kind of says, hey, well, let's talk Let's talk about this. And, like, if you want to achieve that, I'm the one who can help you achieve that. You know, so he kind of lures Alcibiades into this dialogue that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's an interesting dialogue. I thought, like... At first, I felt like it was really easy to follow, and then as I got further into it, I feel like it became harder and harder to follow because he keeps, like, Socrates keeps layering these questions upon questions upon questions to build his point in a Socratic dialogue. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting how he kind of, like, built up the argument and, like, tried to constantly make it so that, like, Alcibiades was the one who was saying the things that Socrates was planting in his head yeah 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 100 percent. and i thought it was interesting because the the state of affairs that alcibiades is in when i first read this you know i'm not like a crazy like power hungry person who wants to like control everyone but 
I do think I know what's right and wrong, you know, or before I read this, I, I did. Right. Or I, I do feel like, you know, um, like, like here. So basically it's like Alcibiades is wants to go to the Athenian assembly and advise the city. Yeah. Right. So Socrates is like, well, what are you going to advise them on? Like, if you're going to advise them, it's because you know something better than they do. So what is it that you, you know better than they do? And he goes through and he's like, well, you studied wrestling and playing the lyre and doing this other thing, right? So are you going to advise them on those things? And he kind of goes through and comes to the point that if you're going to advise them on matters of right and wrong, like, can you even define what that is? Like, where did you acquire that knowledge of right and wrong? Um, and what it comes to is he just doesn't have a very considered conception of what that is. It's highly contradictory. And I think we're all a little bit like that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, here's a, here's a quote kind of related to that. So what do you mean, Alcibiades, by the word better? You would have no difficulty in replying that you meant more wholesome, although you do not profess to be a physician. And when the subject is one of which you profess to have knowledge and about which you are ready to get up and advise as if you knew, are you not ashamed when you are asked not to be able to answer the question? Is it not disgraceful? Alcibiades, very. Socrates, well then, consider and try to explain what is the meaning of better in the matter of making peace and going to war with those against whom you ought to go to war. To what does the word refer? And then he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going. And it comes to the point of where it's like, again, going back to Kaplan, it's like, he doesn't know why he's going to war or what the goals are. He just like, it yeah. thinks that it'll be better. But for what? Like, what is the actual goal? Um, yeah. And it historically plays out exactly like that. Right. Where he ends up, you know, for saying things that people want to hear to gin up support for himself, pushing away the peace deal with Sparta several times, and then ultimately, like, you know, causing the deaths of, I mean, countless Athenians, the destruction of tons of men and material on a foreign front far away from Athens, and then finally defects to the Spartans and then to the Persians. Yeah. Um, so he truly is the classic politician in this, like, public choice theory sense of, like, power-hungry, shallow, ill-considered, no moral due diligence. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's but, yeah. Just having like a self-consistent, rigorous moral framework is hard, though. You know, like when we talked about utilitarianism, um, like it's just very easy to like rationalize. Yeah, you know, I think putting in a good faith effort is is much further than what he's done, and at least trying to like look at it from first principles, reason morally, um. But it's hard to find a solid ground to stand on in terms of building moral framework. Yeah. No, it definitely is. It definitely is. And it's much easier to just go through life, you know, assuming that you know what's right and wrong because it feels like it's an intuitive thing than to think about it, you know, very critically. I mean, that's another one that that I have here where, like, basically, you know, as they continue on this dialogue – he's Socrates basically asks him like, you know, how do you know what's just or unjust? Like who is it that taught you to discern the just from the unjust? Uh, I want you to tell me so I can go and learn of him. 
And then, you know, they basically come to the point where it was like, there's no one who, who really taught you what was just or unjust, you know? Um, and I was like, how can you know something that you've never learned? Yeah, yeah. You know? Then he talks about how, like, he learned it from people in general. Yeah. And then Socrates goes into this, like, interesting, you know, I'm not going to say diatribe, but I guess, like, what, like, line of reasoning on that where he's like, okay, so he learned language from regular people. But if you ask that two people the alphabet, they're not going to disagree. Yeah. Two regular people. Right. And so he's like, okay, so if people know about things, if there's an objective fact people know about, they're not going to disagree upon it. But do people, regular people, disagree on matters of, like, justice and injustice? Yeah. Do they kill each other over it? Okay, so in that case, are regular people um, qualified to teach you about this when clearly they're deeply confused about it themselves? Right. You know? And I was about to say, oh, basically, like, oh, yeah, you're right. They they can't teach me about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that was a kind of interesting line of reasoning, especially where he was like, you know, again, the way he built up these arguments is super interesting, right? Like, he talks about, like, you know, if you're trying to teach someone to ride, someone who would be a teacher of riding must have great knowledge of horses. And if you had two teachers of riding and they both, like, strongly disagreed on, like, basic principles of, like, how to ride a horse, would you trust either teacher? And yeah. it's like, well, probably not, you know, if they can't agree on, like, the basic tenets of this, the fundamental truths. Right. Um yeah. Yeah, and then I guess you uh, with regard to that you could say okay, let's view their objective outcomes, right? But then when you talk about morality, it's a little different, right? Like if I kidnapped five people on the street and forcibly harvested their organs and whatever saved a person or it's the other way. If I killed one person, harvested their organs and saved five people, um you could argue my outcome there is positive. Even though I violated something very deep in terms of moral intuition or in terms of like deontology where it's like the duty to protect human agency and human life. Yeah. Right. So in a moral case, especially it's hard to just view these contradictory moral systems and assess them based on outcomes in a simple way. Though I think that's a, that's a decent starting point. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I think it's fair to say, for example, the communists killed millions of people and that means there's something you know, worse about their system. Um, and if that's not the case, then you'd have to like, okay, well, what's, what's the argument? The argument there is people who were communist ideologues created authoritarian systems which killed millions of people. So I guess the weak link in the chain there is like, does a communist system always have to be authoritarian? Is it authoritarianism or the communism that killed those people? Yeah. You know, but there's a strong correlation. I think it's, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think like, I don't know. I mean, the fact that no communist state has ever achieved what they were trying to do without authoritarianism or murdering millions of people feels like. Or at all. Yeah, or at all. with that. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, it feels like they're, you know, we could probably, you know, draw a line between them. Yeah. Um, I know that there are people who would argue not. I mean, that that could go back again to, to go back to the Kaplan. He had the framework of looking at it, which was like, 
was there a group who were kind of fanatical believers in the purest form of this ideology who then managed to gain power? Yeah. And if you look at those groups of people, what happened? Um, And, uh, you know, you can make a pretty strong case um, in, you know, um, with the Bolshevik Revolution, probably with the Cultural uh, Revolution in China and and a few other things as well. Um, You you absolutely can and... I think, Fidel, right? Fidel um, yeah. started out as this champion of the people and ended up as this like authoritarian, you know, dictator. Yeah, and it's interesting to know most of these champions of the people are like, you know, uh, pontificating elites. Yeah, right. So like that's the thing is like the working class doesn't behave the way you want them to. Yeah, you know, you want them to be like, hey, we're all gonna get, come together and give our personal property. Really, they're like, I could be a billionaire someday. I have you know regular family values and common sense yeah i'm not gonna vote the way you want me to so what you have to do is you have to take over society and force them to be free right yeah (laughs) but uh yeah i wonder i don't know the thing about alcibiades it's interesting and actually relates to that too is alcibiades goes through this whole dialogue right he actually did have a historical association with socrates i believe Mm -hmm. he goes through this whole thing he has all his beliefs questioned. He realizes, he sees the light. He's like, you know what? Maybe I don't know anything. Maybe I have this super, you know, weak foundation on which I've built my whole intellectual framework. And then he goes on to just like completely be a demagogue and kill all these people and betray his country. Right. So with, with all these like um, political ideologues in modern times too, it's like, I'm sure in their minds they were reflective yeah you know yeah so how did it come to that i mean all their reflection all their pontificating all their elite upbringing just amounted to nothing yeah yeah it's an interesting question about like you know is it some fundamental like character trait that makes people you know behave ethically or in in these positions or is it some sort of teaching or or learning that allows them to do so um yeah i don't know i mean i think that in a way it's tempting to say oh it's it's fundamental because then it allows you to throw up your hands and say you can't do anything about it um but i would prefer to believe or i choose to believe that it's not fundamental and it's really about like you know how are we setting up our political systems to get certain outcomes um how are we um you know educating the voters i mean all of these types of different things um yeah yeah i mean i i would agree with you i i think as a hypothesis like it may be a combination of like uh, sorry about the weird noises. We're like literally sitting in a parking lot right now recording this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the lawn guys were at Ion's house like trimming a bush literally outside the window. So we had to hop in the car. Uh, yeah. and, and we're now sitting in a parking lot talking about Alcibiades. But yeah. th- this is a dedication we have to you guys, okay? This is a dedication. Yeah, straight up. Straight if, up. if you want to hang out in a parking lot and talk about Plato, drop us a line. Contact at rdmr.io. Yeah, and rdmr underscore io on Twitter. Yes.
And check out the Reading Rebellion shorts if you want to hear some really dry material and argumentation and propositions. <laughs> Hell it's yeah. going to get better, but right now... It's necessary. It's necessary. It I mean, really is. I can see the value of that stuff even just in reading, you know, the Socrates and stuff right? and, like, the way he's laying out the arguments and uh, the different structures for that. It, it gets in your brain and just, like, unseats your prior beliefs if you, if you let it. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is as like, uh, you know, software engineer, someone who studied computer science, like um, philosophical logic is very appealing. It's it's kind of like it's, it is just prepositional logic, which yeah. if you take a CS degree, you'll study that, you know, at least for part of a semester in a math class. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it really does feel like writing proofs of like mathematical subjects, but it's philosophy i find it to be kind of like yeah. satisfying in that way if you if you have that math brain or, or that background yeah it is it really is and i will say like if you reason that way if you reason in a structured way where you're like here are my premises and here are the intermediary steps that lead to a conclusion you're exposing yourself to be proven wrong yeah you're gonna find the weak links in your own arguments right but you're also gonna eventually be more right as a result of that, like we were talking about this thing, like we, we laid out the argument of, you know, how communism leads to authoritarianism and death. But if you just kind of paint it with one brushstroke, you don't see the weak links. You don't see that what you're saying is communism always ends in authoritarianism. Yeah. You know, um, so I think there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in that if you actually are truth seeking. Right. Right. But okay, so so back to the book. He, he They basically move on in this discussion, and they get to the point where they're trying to figure out, um, well, Socrates is leading him to talk about, again, continuing about justice and injustice, but like, what is... He's basically talking about, you know, what are the things that Alcibiades tries to take charge of or do? So for example... Are you perplexed? Do you spend all day thinking about things which you're totally ignorant about? And the answer he's saying is no. So, like, in their case, you know, Alcibiades, do you think about preparing food or do you just leave that to someone who gets it? If you're on a voyage, are you going to perplex about whether the rudder is drawn inwards or outwards or do you leave it to the pilot and do nothing? Um, and then basically he drives to this point that, like, you know, mistakes in life and practice are likewise to be attributed to the ignorance which has conceit of knowledge. Or in other words, um, many of the bad things in life happen when we act based on the knowledge or based on the assumption that we have knowledge of something when we don't actually know it. Yeah. Um, and and this idea of false knowledge is like extremely dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, that one really resonated with me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's just so easy to fall into that. And the reality is, like, our map, our mental map will never match the territory of reality. But you you have a, in one sense, you have a moral duty to just try to align it as closely as you can. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting the degree to which there's just like a heap of contradiction upon which people will seek to like control other people's lives or intervene in other people's lives. Like it goes back to the Brian Kaplan, you know, kind of like shallow argumentation or lack of moral due diligence. Like 
pile of false beliefs upon which people will, you know, be like, we should do this, we should do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. There's a philosophical framework called evidentialism, which is like a moral framework. And literally what it is, is it's like immoral to hold false beliefs. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. I think that's, I'd probably agree with that. I mean, but that's kind of like, you know, um, being someone who believes in like the Western tradition of like, you know, liberalism and, you know, enlightenment ideals, rationalism, that, that, that ultimate like seeking of truth is kind of like the ultimate, like it's valuable. Yeah. Goal. And, and also morally important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it fits kind of neatly in in with that. But I would say, you know, most most traditions have a truth-seeking element to them. That's true. Yeah. And the ones that just truly don't, where they're just like, fuck it. Like, that's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is pretty rare. It's usually, like, very fringe stuff. Like the, um, it's like some, like, weird, like cult that believed like the aliens were gonna like take us away and a bunch of them like killed themselves together in like a house in california example of not actual truth seeking although they still thought that they were truth seeking even though they clearly were not you know the, the, the thing i find interesting is it's actually become a very mainstream thing to not be truth seeking or to you know believe that everyone has the right to complete subjectivity and that everyone else's personal experience is entirely un- inaccessible. Um, that's actually a very mainstream opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, it's just interesting. I mean, I think for me, like, I don't know, this is my answer to most things, but I think it's, you know, somewhere in between, right? Like, I think yeah. there are things that are objective and there are things that are subjective and like, mm-hmm. you know, we need to be able to process both types of information. We need to be able to you know, try to come to an understanding of both types of things, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, you know, if we're talking about, take a random example, like traffic safety, you know, I think that clearly there's objective truth there. Um, I think if we're talking about, as an example, like, oh, uh, let's say education, I think you can make a strong argument that like different people learn in very different ways and there's no like single objective correct way to educate, you know, the entire population to teach. Um, and I think people do retain knowledge in different ways, right? Like, um, you know, someone duels might prefer listening to auditory content or seeing like visual content. And I may prefer reading, you know, um, and I think that is subjective. Um, to a certain degree, yeah, yeah. With that, see, that, like, with that example, so that's a very popular theory called, like, learning styles theory. Um, I actually did a podcast episode on this a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Like, that's actually been, like, widely discredited. Mm-hmm. Um, but people do still, like, you know, learn in different ways. But the whole thing about being an auditory learner or, like, a kinesthetic learner, mm-hmm. um, that's actually not true. The people who are interested better, yeah. So you're saying objectively all people retain information from one way or the other better? Or, like, what is the argument there? Um, objectively, there are other factors aside from, like, the medium in which you get the information that will help you retain it. 
So things like interleaving, like interspersing different types of content, or like spaced retrieval. Um, obviously, for you know Jules' case, like being dyslexic, that's a case where she would retain information better. Maybe if it was like auditory, um, it'll definitely be harder to retain if it's like written. Yeah, not to like just sh- like shit on your example. No, no, you're fine. I mean, it was just an arbitrary example. Um, this is just a battle I had at the Chicago like literacy alliance because like they were pushing this, and I did some research back then, and I was like, this seems like it's discredited. Yeah, and they were just like, we choose to believe it. Uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I mean. You know, I, let, let me try to think of an, another example uh, of this. Like, okay, we, we can take an even more, like, toy of an example. Like, different people like different forms of exercise or different people's yes. bodies are, are different, right? I think some people are more naturally um, built to be, like, endurance athletes. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. some people might be better at sprinting, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or, yeah. you know, lifting or whatever it is. And, like... Clearly, all of those things are good. I don't think you can prescriptively say, like, this is the only way for you to be fit and live a healthy lifestyle. Nope. And I would also say in terms of how much you enjoy those things. Yeah. Or how much pain you experience. Those are things that are subjective. Right. Yeah. Like, I'm not convinced, like, even if we could, like, look at someone's pain receptors. Well, maybe this is actually true. I don't know. But I'm not convinced that you could, like, cleanly correlate their subjective sense of pain to their objective physical um, correlate of that. Yeah. yeah. And a good example of this is there was a guy in Canada who was a construction worker and he hammered a, he believed he hammered a nail into his foot. It was like through his boot and he was like in extreme pain and his vitals were all over the place and they took him to the hospital and they like cut the boot off and it went in between his toes. But he still was experiencing subjectively a massive amount of pain with no physical correlate at all. That's crazy. So that's a great example of how there wasn't really an objective element there to grab a hold of. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, there is subjectivity. I, I just think, like, people use, like, radical subjectivity to cloak bad arguments and, and yeah. shield themselves from critique, you know? That's true. That's true. I mean, it, it, it's kind of like, it's the whole fake news thing, right? It's like, if you if I don't like the facts that you're presenting, I'm just going to put my fingers in my ears and go, la, 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 la. And that's it. It's my right to do that. But it's not. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is your right to physically do whatever you want. But, like, I do believe you have a moral imperative to try to find the truth. Yeah. yeah. In good faith. Yeah, you I know? agree. Um, but I do think most people want to do that. Many people do get swept up in, like, the tribalism and the, you know, get uh, adhering to the party lines and, you know, self-serving um or or shallow lines of thinking for sure. I mean, I sometimes can get swept up in those things, yeah, no definitely. doubt. Yeah. But I think most people would like to leave uh, you know, a more examined life. More most people would like to, you know, find the objective truth um and live their lives based on that. Given the isolation. Especially if you take them out of, you know, whatever situation they may be in. So like yeah. You're in a Twitter flame war or like, you know, you're on a college campus and you've got this group of friends and you get wrapped up in the whole thing. I mean, I know that happened to me my freshman, sophomore year of college. I was like way on the left. And then I was like, wait a second, like some of the things I'm saying are just stupid. (laughs) Like, what am I doing here? 100%. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Davos. (laughs) World Economic (laughs) Forum. Yeah, no, I, 
I'm not in Davos, unfortunately. Or fortunately, you know. Depending on what you what you gotta do, you gotta go work at a hedge fund, you know, eighty hours a week, asses in chairs, no work from home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Though, yeah. So you were talking about the fact that you're coming into work twice a week now. I'm yeah. coming into work twice a week too. Um, I think like the Elon Musk thing is a little extreme with where he's like five days a week, um, forty hours a week in the office minimum, and then you can work from home. Yeah, but I also see what he's saying where like someone's like. Well, what about all these other companies that are so much more flexible? And he basically told his executives, like, you can go pretend to work at those companies if you want. What? <laughs> <laughs> Where he's a little extreme, but also there's there's a kernel of truth in what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, like, I mean, another crazy theory I saw about the Elon Musk thing, not to get too off track, was that Tesla was planning to lay off 10% of their workforce, and he was hoping by doing this, like, 10% would just quit. Did they? I don't know. Some would. I would, Some would. I would consider it. Five would, days is a lot. Five days is a lot. I mean, I think his thesis is wrong, personally. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you have to be in the office to, to yeah. do your best work. Um, I think it's individual. I think it is individual. I, that Okay, there's an example of sub- subjectivity. Like, yeah. I have coworkers who definitely prefer being in the office, who get a lot more out of being in the office. And I've also noticed, like, you know, as more of a leader on the team, when I am in the office, it's good for those people. Like, they get more out of their work day if they can, like, ask me questions and stuff face-to-face. Yeah, yeah. Um, For me personally, I get a lot more done at home, partially because I work way more. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't, like, you know screw around and like chit chat with people who I've been working with for years but haven't seen in a couple years, you know, at the house. I just like sit and work. Yeah, that's why, I mean, I think it's a mix, you know? Yeah. Like Duncan was telling me some research, Duncan's my boss, about like how um, when you're in person, it's easier to generate ideas. And when you're remote, it's easier to evaluate ideas. So it's things like that. But I I do think some in-person time is valuable. Yeah. For at least relationship building at the bare minimum. But for some people, I think they need more or less, you know. And I yeah. think it's got to be like, depending on how you're performing. Right. If you're performing well, you get more freedom. If you're not performing as well, you get less. Yeah. And maybe you start with a baseline of one or two days, you know. Yeah. 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 I think that makes sense. Anyway, sorry. It's to- totally off track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could try to bring it back. Um, so last thing we were talking about was basically this idea of like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he wants to go um, into politics and advise people anyway. So I can, I can pull a quote here. Um, so let's see here. And now we see what has happened to you, Alcibiades. I hardly like to speak of your evil case, but as we are alone, I will. My good friend, you are wedded to ignorance of the most disgraceful kind, and of this you are convicted, not by me, but out of your own mouth and by your own argument. Wherefore, also, you rush into politics before you are educated. Neither is your case to be deemed singular. For I might say the same of almost all our statesmen, with the exception, perhaps, of your guardian Pericles. So again, just going back to this idea that people rush into politics, many of them don't appreciate the great responsibility that comes with their great power. They don't do the moral due diligence to do it. Some of them do. Most of them don't. Most of them don't. And I would also say this isn't just politicians. I would say this is also, you know, students taking political action. 
You yeah. Know, where it's like the whole like Jordan Peterson, like, do you have your house in order thing? You know, before you go and try to change the world, maybe have your life in reasonable shape, you know, um, where, yeah, I just think if you know nothing and have done nothing to try to like completely tear down Western society and rebuild it from scratch might be a little ambitious, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so another thing I thought was interesting is as they go on in this discussion, they talk about like, you know, um, it, it basically gets to the point where like Alcibiades says, hey, like, look, this is what all the other politicians are. And I think that I'm wiser than them. So why isn't that uh, fine? So, so I really like the way Socrates uh, broke this down. So he says, and suppose that you were going to steer a ship into action. Would you only aim at being the best pilot on board? Would you not, while acknowledging that you must possess this degree of excellence, rather look to your an antagonists and not, as you are now doing, to your fellow c combatants? You ought to be so far above these latter that they will not even dare to be your rivals, and, being regarded by you as inferiors, will do battle for you against the enemy. This is the kind of superiority which you must establish over them, if you mean to accomplish any noble action really worthy of yourself and of the state. Um, so basically, like, you know, trying to be the best out of, you know, whatever group you're in is, is not enough. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. you need to pursue excellence for the sake of excellence, not for the sake of being the best in whatever slice you're in. Right. And then he goes on to talk about, like, the king of Sparta and, like, Persia, and he's like, Okay, you think, you know, you have this natural intelligence and, like, you know, you're well-bred and have all this wealth. Well, the king of Sparta, you know, ha is descended from kings going all the way back to Hercules and he has, like, more wealth than you can imagine. And he's been tutored since the age of four by, like, the smartest people in the world. And the Spartans have more um, of a formidable nature and more honor, more dignity and more courage than you can ever imagine. You look like a child compared to them. Yeah. And he's like, you know, yeah. Yeah. And then he goes on and says, like, okay, and now we can compare the Spartan king to the Persian king. Yeah. And this guy is so rich that some of the richest lands in all of Asia are just, like, reserved, kept in reserve for his wife when she needs to pay for a garment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the king of Sparta... Um, looks like his wealth looks like that of a child compared to her yeah. and what if we went to the wife of, of or the mother of xerxes and we said that you know alcibiades's mom who is descended from no one who has you know a few hundred whatever their unit of, of money was i forget um you know what what is that like they're, they're gonna laugh at you like what well, what is your what do you really have here that you're bringing to the table yeah you know yeah which speaks to, I mean, you know, this relates to real life stuff, right? Like if you work at a company and everyone's very like fat and happy, it's like, are you comparing yourself to the best in the world who you're trying to unseat or to your peers? Yeah. You know, are you, are you content, you know, in, in good weather, but then the storm is coming and it's going to wipe you out or are you, you know, contending against the, the deeper challenges that are going to face you in the future and your, your best competitors, your best potential competitors. Yeah. And against your ideal, you know? Yeah. 
Oh, I've been such a slug this week. I can't even say ideal. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's okay. I mean, we're all up and down. It's I've been just... an ideal slug. <laughs> 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 but I feel like I'm evolving by reading this and doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Hey, I mean, we could have easily just said, we're going to not drive to a parking lot so we can do this podcast (laughs) we could have either said hey we're just gonna do it and have it just be unlistenable because there's chainsaws in the background sorry that was an audi all right um or we could you know have just not done it but we're here and we're doing it yeah we're doing it for you all okay we're doing it so you guys can all live and examine life with us and you know just completely bankrupt the uh the cheap attention thieves that are vying for your your eyeballs. Yeah. In some cases, literally. I mean, if you're in China, they'll literally remove them from your body. And if you get too mouthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the Audi R8 that just like passed by us, this guy basically looks like Ali G. <laughs> and he has like 17 cars and like, you, lives in like a McMansion. Do you know this guy? Like, no, he, well, he's the guy who has, like, the Lamborghini, the R8, the two two Mercedes, and, like, the, the whatever, Escalade. <laughs> and he just lives in, like, a McMansion with, like, two-car garage. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, he li- he's the one who lives right around the corner. Maybe we can go, like... <laughs> I just looked up Ali G. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you guys don't know who Ali G is, look him up, and it'll make things really clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm hoping to be after the launch of our app. Trace Comas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping to start off, pay for some private school, and buy a, a modest home. And then uh, after that, yeah, ball out. Of control. I mean, buying a modest home out here is is balling out. Oh yeah, buying eight, not being homeless here is like balling. Yeah, out. honestly. Yeah. We were uh, we were in SF last week with um, Jules' brother, and we were seeing like these like stone mansions at the top of some hill. They're like twenty million dollar like granite mansions. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It is incredible. SF is a weird city, man. SF is a interesting place. Yeah, it is. It is full of demagogues who don't know the difference between justice and injustice, right and wrong, and don't know that they don't know that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or maybe, I mean, I don't know. I'm not convinced that it's like ignorance um, and and not straight up malice. Uh, some of yeah. the stuff that goes on in in SF, but that's a different you know that's a different issue. I don't want to delve deep into that. I think it's know. a combination. Yeah, I think it's like malicious people playing upon people's ignorance, or people who are willfully ignorant because it suits them. Yeah, and uh, or people who don't believe they can be malicious, right, and therefore don't see their true in- intentions and motives. You know. Right. Yeah, so here's one thing about Socrates and Plato, both, or I guess really the Platonic version of Socrates that we get passed down to us. Mm-hmm. So he has this idea that it's like, hey, if you don't know about ships, leave it to the shipbuilders. If you don't know about justice, leave it to the philosopher kings, is what Plato comes to in the Republic. How do you feel about that? Um... I don't really agree with – so I, I – what I do agree with was if you don't know about this thing, 
you know, maybe you shouldn't be giving advice on it or pon- like pontificating on it to other people. I can agree with that. What I don't agree with is just leave it to other people and don't. What, what I view it as is like, if you don't know about this thing and you want to pontificate on it, go and educate yourself. Yeah. And then yeah. through, you know, dialogue with other people who know hopefully more than you, um, you can build an understanding and get to the point where you can actually discuss these things. Like that was one thing that I did feel in reading this in general is like, he seems to definitely have this idea of like, you know, kind of like stay in your lane. This is what, you know, that's, that's what it is. Um, I disagree with that quite strongly. I feel like, you know, I mean, that's what we're doing here, right? It's like we're trying to learn and understand the things that we don't know about, right? Like, yeah. um, and, and grow through that in order to do more and be better and live better lives. Yeah. So that's really my issue with the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. It kind of denigrates people's uh, ability to, you know, use their intellect and use common sense to educate themselves. And it, this has a lot of real-world ramifications, you know? Like, as an example... I understand that as someone who's not a nuclear physicist, I don't have the grounds to question how you would construct the ideal nuclear bomb. But as a regular citizen with common sense, I think it's it's valid for me to have an opinion on whether we should use nuclear weapons or have yeah. them. And I think in the pandemic, I heard some interesting, uh, you know, dialogues along these lines too, where, you know, I heard some public health people being like, hey, be humble and just know that this is not your area. And you just need to, like, stay in your lane and leave it to us. And on the one hand, yes, you know, virology is, may not be our area. But the the balance between, like, risk and freedom is a philosophical question that, that affects everyone. It's not about the science. Yeah. You know? Um, and in that particular case, I think it's funny because, like, public health people basically just use, like, high school math that, like, a chimp can understand. It's not rocket science. Um, it's probably Dunning-Kruger effect me saying that, but... I do believe, like, literally, if you pay attention in high school stats, you should be able to understand anything a public health person says. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm sure that there are complicated models and things that they use in certain cases, but I also think that... they wouldn't be public health people. I don't agree with that. I know, I'm just I think <laughs> I, I, I've known some people who work in public health who are really smart. Um, I met this guy, Eric, who's a friend of one of our... Who, who's our friend David's friend, and um, he's a really smart guy. He was... Um, going to study public health in like the Netherlands or something. I think he's now working at the, at some, he's working for some, uh, tribe in Wisconsin or something on their public health, yeah. uh, stuff. But, um, anyway, point being, I, I really don't, I, I don't think the issue is like the public health people and the sophistication of their science. I think the issue is this idea that we're going to tell you, hey, like, don't worry about it. It's stay in your lane. You don't have to know about it. And I think the other thing is, like, more broadly in the scientific community, uh, I think it's scientists are not good, by and large, at explaining things to the general public in a non-patronizing way or even at all. Yeah. And I think that's consistent across almost all scientific disciplines. And it's actually a huge problem because what it leads to is, again, this this kind of ivory tower intellectualism where, you know, um, the scientists sit off in a corner and they say, this is best, that's best. And then the most of the people are just like, screw those people. They're ivory tower intellectuals. They don't know what's actually going on. Right. They're not they, – they look down on us. They patronize us. So we don't care what they have to say, even if they may be actually right. Right. Um, so I don't know. It's, I, 
like, I think the thing that I keep coming back to lately more and more is just like, what we need to do as a society in order to be successful is just engage with each other. We yeah. need to engage. We need to have dialogue. We need to be able to receive feedback. We need to hear opinions that we disagree with. We need to talk through them. We need to have people like Socrates in our lives who are just going to take us and say, look, man, you're fucking up. Like, <laughs> you need to get your shit together. Right. You know? Uh, and we need to be receptive to that. Like, yeah. we need to thank those people. Because they're the people who really care about you. It's like with John Stuart Mill, you know, we need to thank the dissidents in our midst, midst and not punish them. Yeah. So providing us a service, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's like, yeah. So, you know, at one point he talks about the fact that, like, if you're trying to see yourself and you're looking at somebody else, like, you know, what do you look at? You look at their pupils. You look at the part of them that can reflect you. Right. So it's like this, this interaction between two people is really important to like elicit the truth. Um, so I think that's my biggest problem with this whole like be humble, stay in your lane thing is to me, it promotes this climate of kind of unaccountable insiderism um, by like, you know, highly credentialed experts who are just like, you, you couldn't understand this. Like, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know? Um, and the reason I bring it up is just because. In Plato's work in general, like as we explore it, I find this to be a big issue where it's not just regular people who are confused, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, like we're talking about this video where people, you know, were asked in Times Square, oh, do you know the capital of the U.S.? Do you know what three countries are in North America? And basically, they don't know anything. They're, they're completely hopeless. They don't know anything. Um, so when you see that, you're like, okay, can we handle democracy? Like, when people are walking around like this, who literally know nothing, like, they think the Civil War was fought between Great Britain and Australia, <laughs> can we have it? And the, the thing that makes me feel like, actually, we still have to have it is experts have their own derangements, but they don't realize they do. Like, these people are laughing at themselves. They know they're, they, they don't know anything. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I agree. I think that's also, also one thing where I end up um, disagreeing with with Brian, um, all due respect to him, but, um, I don't think less democracy is the answer. I mean, I think reform of democracy is the answer. Um, you know, reform of things like our primary system. I was actually listening to an interesting podcast about that earlier and I was having an interesting discussion with one of my friends. Um, and I would love to, you know, we were talking about this, do a rebuttal episode in a way to Brian, where we read some of the philosophies that make the argument for democracy, um, and kind of compare and contrast, but, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think, like, oligarchy is, you know, um, it's a, it's nice in theory if you get the right people in charge. But, you know, how do you get the right people in charge? And what are the chances of them staying in charge? I think it's very rarely that that kind of thing succeeds. Yeah, I mean, who are the right people and who decides? And how do you counterbalance, you know, just, like intellectual inbreeding and um you know groupthink and all, all the excesses of just being a cloistered group of people who see yourselves as above society but let me just say i don't think all public health people are stupid i don't think public health is for simpletons i'm just saying that it's possible for regular people to engage with this stuff yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. That's that. I, I, I can agree with that much more. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been indoors for like two years. So, <laughs> so I got a little salt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so real quick, uh, last couple of things and then, and then I think we should wrap. But so one thing I want to talk about is Socrates is then talking about, you know, um, you know, what are you trying to do in governance? And it's basically like, okay, you're trying to give the citizens virtue if you mean to administer their affairs rightly or nobly. But can a man give that which he has not? Impossible. Since Socrates says, then you or anyone who means to govern and superintend not only himself and the things of himself, but the state and the things of the state must in the first place acquire virtue. Alcibiades, that is true. Socrates, you have not therefore to obtain power or authority in order to enable you to do what you wish for yourself in the state, but justice and wisdom. I think that's kind of the fundamental thing that Brian Kaplan is really getting at with his book and his philosophy. Um, and it's just funny to see Socrates talking about it thousands of years ago, right? Yeah. The power and, and authority is the side effect, but what you should be seeking is justice and wisdom. Yeah. And is, I mean, is there any way to counteract this, right? Because let's say we set up a system where we're like, you know what? Only people who can demonstrate their justice and wisdom get to be politicians. Okay. How's that going to be done? Maybe a series of dialogues, maybe an exam. Now the most power hungry people are going to go and like dig up all this information to ape the appearance of justice so that they can now, you know, uh, get in positions of power and then rationalize more effectively. So I just say this because like, okay, you know, this dialogue was written in 300 BC, let's say in the intervening time, this has been a part of the intellectual tradition of the West the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're in a better place, but still this, this dynamic persists and mostly we're in a better place by like limiting the powers of those who rule. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I would agree to a certain extent. I mean, I think the other thing is like, um, well, I think so. I was talking to one of my friends about the the Brian Kaplan episode, like you said, and he he works in D.C. and in, in politics, and so you know he obviously disagreed with a lot of the things, you know, being in that system. And one of the things that he was talking about that he really disagrees with is the assumption that all politicians are acting in bad faith. If you assume people are acting in good faith, I think you can get to a, a reasonable system. If you assume people are acting in bad faith, then I think it's very difficult. Reality, I think, is some people are acting in good faith, some people are acting in bad faith. Um, yeah. But what is your, you know, fundamental thesis on how people are going to act? And then, you know, then you try to build the system based on what your goals are and where you think people are coming from to meet that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, see, what I find tough about that is, like, you know, what makes capitalism work, so Brian Kevill makes this argument where he's, like, it's a combination of, like, free trade, but also property rights, the rule of law, uh, and a couple of other of these things, you know. So it's, like, in order to have a political system harness people's power hunger for good, um, you know, you'd, you'd have to really, like, incentivize people to use their control in positive ways. Mm -hmm. And I guess Brian Kaplan's thesis is that's not what's currently done. Like what's incentivized is for people to use their control to create the perception of improvement. So that, I guess it's really an incentive problem. It's not like politics has to be 
broken forever. It kind of mostly has been, but um, I guess it's it's possible. I mean, I guess some of the stuff Michael was saying, right? Is there some like incentive based, like mechanism based things that can be changed to harness people's desires to create a better outcome? Yeah, yeah, right, right. No, but he has a he had a really deep critique, and we're definitely going to go into that in detail. This is not like the end of this conversation. Yeah. So, Michael, if you hear this, we haven't done your full arguments justice, but we will. Yeah. Yeah. yeah agreed. Agreed. And also, we'll just leave you as Michael, so you can't be identified. Yes. And that might not even be your name. That could be like a you know. Well, don't nickname. tell the listeners in DC like all the the NSA because now they know that it's a nickname. We don't know that it's that. the only thing you know is that you don't know all right we're on four percent battery out here in this parking lot outside of Citibank. um so so it's probably a wrap on that overall i would say very interesting stuff um pretty pretty readable you know uh in terms of a classic i would say um yeah i would encourage you to pick this up if you've been finding this kind of thread interesting it's it's interesting to see like you know one of the original democracies and one of the original critiques of potential demagoguery in democracy yeah. you know from like you said the the intellectual tradition of the west that, that we've had for thousands of years yeah yeah um ultimately yeah i don't know it's interesting it's interesting it'll i'll be interested to dig into the counterpoints and the rebuttal and and see if we can flesh out the other side of these arguments a little bit yeah and for that, we might be reading uh, Bernard Crick's In Defense of Politics, though at least half of the things I say we're going to read, we end up changing it out on. So we may change that out, and it'll be an adventure. It'll be yeah. a, a surprise. So we have, There's a lot of books out there. Yeah, that's for sure. <clears throat> All right, so this has been Reading Rebellion, uh, RDMR underscore IO on uh, Twitter. Contact at RDMR.io. Um, Reading Rebellion shorts, and this is, uh, that's it. Hell yeah.